evidence and answers. Most studies on the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ focus on Jesus. But how about the characters around Christ? What were they like? And how were they transformed by the resurrection? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in part one of this interview, Pat and his guest, Daniel Darling, discuss the characters of Easter and gain new insights into the other key figures of the Easter story. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, you know a lot about the events that go around the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, but today we're going to focus on several of the characters involved in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to help us with that is our guest, Daniel Darling. He's the Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Religious Broadcasters and a regular contributor to several leading evangelical publications, which include Christianity Today, Home Life, In Touch, and others. And he's an author of several books, including Teen People of the Bible, The Original Jesus, and The Dignity Revolution. Dan is a teaching pastor at Green Hills Church in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, there, and lives there with his wife and four children. So, Dan, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Well, it's an honor to be on the radio with you here and to talking to the good people uh, in Hawaii. Yes, uh, Hawaii and the Pacific and Asia. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. So Daniel, we're focusing on your new book here, Characters of Easter, where you focus on some of the main characters regarding the death and resurrection of Christ. And tell us a little bit about the characters that you go over and why you selected these particular characters. That's a great question. Well, first of all, I've always loved character profiles. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I would listen to the radio and I listened to Chuck Swindoll preach on these these great preaching series on the characters in the Bible, people like Moses and Joseph and David. And was just captivated by that. And I've always loved biographies. My idea of leisure time is sitting back with a good biography. So it was natural for me to do this. And, you know, the Bible is full of rich characters. And it, it's interesting to me that the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross to pay for our sins and then rising again the third day, this resurrection story. It's interesting the kinds of people God chose to be part of this narrative that he cast in this drama. Mostly ordinary people. Like if you were to hire an executive search firm to cast about for the right people to lead a worldwide revolution, a movement that, that would turn the world upside down literally, you probably wouldn't go looking along the shores of Galilee, and you wouldn't choose, among others, uh, these sort of middle-class, ordinary fishermen, and yet this is what Jesus did. So really wanted to help people get a fresh view of Easter, uh, the story through the eyes of the people who lived through it in the first century. Yes, you know, you stated that you probably wouldn't have recruited these people if you're starting a revolutionary new kind of movement for God. So what did these guys have, you know, that allow Jesus to pick them? What is one or two common features that you saw in their lives that made Jesus want to pick these guys? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, we know, and we know this from the Christmas story and from the Easter story, and really from the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that God often chooses the least likely people. He used Abram, who was a pagan, 
in Ur. He used David, who was the least of his brothers and was tending sheep. He called a former persecutor of Christians to be the apostle that would take the gospel to the Gentiles. So this is what God does. And today, Christ is building his church mostly with ordinary people. People are willing to put their yes on the table. I think one of the things you find with, for instance, Peter and James and Thomas and the women who followed Jesus was that they didn't really know what would happen. They didn't know what they were signing up for completely, but they put their yes on the table. They followed Jesus and said, we will do this wherever it goes. Yes, you know, and tell us, what was it then that they gave up to follow Jesus? And what was it like to experience, you know, three years living, eating, walking, and, you know, being with Jesus 24-7? Well, they gave up a lot. You know, they gave up security and stability. Let's let's think about Peter and Andrew and James and John for a second. They were as part of this fishing business that was owned by John James and John's father, Zebedee. That was a safe career. That was a safe uh, way of making a living. Peter had a, a wife. It was a, it was a comfortable, not wealthy, but not impoverished life. They gave up comfort and a sure thing to follow this itinerant rabbi who had no place to lay his head. Ultimately, we know what they gave up. They gave up even their dreams that Jesus would usher in a political revolution, that he would overthrow Rome Ultimately, they gave up their lives. Most of them were martyred for their faith. They gave up prestige and acclaim and uh, being loved by the world, being loved by their peers. But what they gained was so much more. They gained the kingdom of God. Yes, you know, and I can just imagine being with Jesus for a year and a half, two years, just around him constantly. The things, the kind of conversations they must have had, the things that they must have seen. You know, John says, if... All the things that Jesus did, you know, were recorded. All the books of the world can't contain everything that Jesus did. You know, what kind of special insights or experiences you think they had that really being with Jesus would give them the privilege to see? Well, they were eyewitnesses, right? And one of the things that's so important about the testimony of Jesus, about the historicity of the Eastern narrative, is that you had eyewitnesses, people who were there. And we can take their word because they, they didn't believe it was going to happen. And after after the story, they had to be convinced by Jesus physically appearing among them. But eyewitness testimonies among the most powerful testimonies in a court of law. The apostles had a special view of Jesus. They walked with Jesus for three years. They saw him personally. They lived with him side by side. And yet, it's interesting, in the upper room, Jesus says to the essentially says to the disciples that as amazing as it was for Jesus to be present physically among them, Jesus leaving, ascending to heaven and sending the Holy Spirit is, would, would be even better. Jesus in you through the Holy Spirit is even better than Jesus physically with them. And we see that 2,000 years later that the witness of the gospel, the church has spread throughout the world through a movement that began with 12 ordinary men. Yeah, you know, and you make it a point to show that Jesus was calling them from just the casual observer to a committed disciple or follower of him. So what does that tell us about the nature of discipleship that Jesus calls all believers to? You know, if you look at the call of Peter, for instance, that there was not just one call, there was a series of calls. You know, Peter had interacted with Jesus. Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. Peter had hosted him at his house for some teaching. They probably passed in the synagogue and in the marketplace. 
But then there was a moment where Jesus showed up in his workplace and Jesus showed up on the beach there. And Peter has a bad day at the office. He doesn't catch any fish. And Jesus says to him, he performs this miracle where he fills up the net with fish, which would be a miracle of provision, providing for his needs. And he basically says, you can trust me with your whole life. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, put down your nets, put down what you have clung to for your security and leave that behind and trust in me and I will take care of you. This was a big step. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to follow him in radical obedience with our lives, with our giving, with our posture toward the world, with our uh, sexuality, with every aspect. He demands to be Lord of all of our lives. You know, my observation in speaking at churches around in, in the West, this is not true in Asia, but in the West, that teaching and that emphasis on discipleship, I find, is lacking in the churches in the West today. Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, it, it depends what part of the church. I mean, I think in pockets of the church you see that, where there is a kind of persistent health and wealth kind of drumbeat that if you follow Jesus, Jesus is going to make you rich. Jesus is going to cure everything that if you follow Jesus, he's going to make everything better. And the truth is that's not necessarily true even in the short term because Jesus calls us to follow him in suffering, to, to follow him in death. Uh, look at some of the greatest men in, and women in the, in the Bible. God calls them to go through great suffering. But in the long term, it really is true because what you give up in the short term in this temporal life, you gain in the kingdom of God. And so most of the time, our, it's not that our dreams are too big, it's that they're too small. Is that we're investing everything in this temporal life, and Jesus is calling us to something that's going to be far greater in the life to come. That uh, what we long for is really what he will bring to us in, in the kingdom of God in the new Jerusalem. And so I think there's parts of the West that are lacking because of prosperity, because of comfort. I think there's other parts. There's a kind of a resurgence, I think, of, of good, solid theological teaching that is preparing people for this. And I think people in the West need to really prepare themselves for a time when increasingly Christianity, true, genuine, biblical Christianity, is not going to be so accepted. It's going to be marginalized, it's going to be seen as weird and strange. We're already starting to see some kind of glimpses of that. And are American Christians ready for this, or are we going to be surprised by it? Yeah, those are great words. You know, and being with Jesus transformed the lives of these disciples. You talk about John, who was originally known as one of the sons of thunder, who transformed and later became the apostle of love. So what is it that made that great transformation in his life? You know, I love talking about John because we, we think of Peter as the impulsive one, right? Always saying stuff. But actually, it was John who Jesus gave the nickname a son of thunder. And this was not a term of endearment. John was hot-headed. He was legalistic. We see, for instance, one time that he wants to call down fire on the Samaritans, who they're not following the true way of Israel. And they Jesus is trying to reach them, like he did at the, reach the woman at the well who's a Samaritan, and show them, offer them living water. He wants to call down fire on them. He's thinking... Jesus is, is God. He's thinking back to Elijah who called on fire on the prophets of Baal. He said, let's just redo that. And Jesus rebukes him there. There's another time that people are doing ministry and it's not officially sanctioned by their group, but they're doing gospel ministry. He wants to essentially send them a cease and desist letter and say, what are you doing? And Jesus says, whoever's not against us is with us. And then, of course, we see the epic 
struggle that he and his brother had, even trying to elbow out the other disciples and ask, you know, Jesus, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? They're thinking this is a revolutionary political movement. Jesus is king. Therefore, maybe I'll be secretary of defense. Maybe I'll be secretary of state. <laughs> um, it's funny because Peter, James and John were the you couldn't get more inner circle than where they were. And yet even in this, they're trying to edge out Peter and have this for themselves. They even enlist their mother. Mm-hmm. Their mother asks at one point, you know, you can almost imagine that conversation of, hey, Jesus really likes you. Why don't you ask him? What's interesting to me is that I think in the upper room is where John started to change. It's in that upper room discourse, the first time in the Gospel of John, where John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's describing the first time he's seeing the love of Jesus toward him. And he's seeing the way Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. He's seeing the way Jesus even washed the feet of Judas who would betray him. And so he actually was next to Jesus in the kingdom. He did get to sit next to Jesus. But it's it's a different kind of power and a different kind of kingdom. It's one that is more oriented around service and around humility than power. And this is what I think transformed John into the apostle of love. And later we see in his letters, he's talking about love. He's talking about service. This is what Jesus wants to do with everyone who follows him. He takes us raw and untested. He takes us with all of our flaws and our failures. And he turns us into the kind of disciples fit for the kingdom. Yes, you know, and I think it's John that's the only one at the cross, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whom Jesus turns over and says, hey, take care of my mom from here. That's exactly right. And in fact, John is the one there at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying in agony. And it's John whom Jesus can trust with the most ultimate assignment and care and compassion, the care of his mother. He trusted this former son of thunder to care for his mother. It shows us also, too, that Jesus, even as he's dying for the sins of the world, cares for his mother. And I think it tells us something a little bit about the way that we should care for our parents and for, for the for our elderly. Jesus is obeying the command to honor their father and mother. Yes, you're listening to our interview with Dan Darling, the author of this great book, Characters of Easter. And these are the kind of insights you know he brings uh, to his book there. Now, one of the most misunderstood, but of course, one of at least my favorite disciple is Thomas, and he's often characterized as doubting Thomas. But really, what are the insights that you bring to Thomas? Maybe we uh, misjudged him here, labeling him as the doubter. Well, we get Thomas wrong. I mean, that's the thing that really, as I studied to write this book, you know, we it's unfortunate we call him doubting Thomas because Thomas really should be described as someone who's very courageous. Like the other disciples, he left everything to follow Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus. We see three times in Scripture where Thomas speaks. They're all in the Gospel of John. The first time is when the disciples are debating whether to go back to Bethany to be near Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Lazarus is not doing well. He's sick and dying. They know the risks because Jesus' enemies are there. After all the deliberation, you know Thomas is sitting back there, and then he pipes up and he says, Let's go die with Jesus. In other words, I've counted the cost. I've asked the right questions. This is what I signed up for. I'm willing to do this. Just a courageous, courageous step. The second time we hear Thomas is in that upper room when Jesus is sharing with him that he is about to leave and send the Holy Spirit. And he's sharing with them. He says, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you to the disciples. And Thomas asks a great question, really the question that every seeker asks how can we know the way? And to that, we get one of the greatest 
answers in all the Bible. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then finally, we see Thomas at the end. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, but he doesn't know it yet. The disciples had had an encounter with Jesus, with the risen Lord. They'd seen him physically. He didn't eat and fish within their midst. The women had seen him. Thomas is still despondent. He's wondering, the, the person that I put all my faith in, this Messiah, how did he let himself get arrested? Did I put my faith in the wrong movement? He's disillusioned. He's jaded. And the the disciples kind of pull him back toward Jesus. And they kind of like say to him, Jesus is alive. Trust me, we've seen him. They go back to that same upper room where so many precious memories and moments happen. And Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas had said, unless I see the nail scars in your hands, I'm not going to believe. In other words, I'm not buying this. I got to see, I got to see something real. Jesus shows him the nail scars in his hands and his side. And Thomas falls down in worship. He says, my Lord and my God. This really is the only response to the risen Lord, that if Jesus indeed walked out of that tomb and he is alive, if he conquered sin and death in the grave, then it changes everything. And the only response is to say, he's not just a great teacher. He's not just a wonderful healer. He's not just an inspirational figure. He is God and he deserves to be Lord of my life. And so really, when we think of Thomas, we think we should think of someone of great faith, of great courage, someone who asks questions. He's a reminder that our questions don't surprise God, but that ultimately they lead to a person. And uh, tradition says that Thomas spent the rest of his life evangelizing India and was martyred for his faith. Yes. You know, when I became a Christian, Thomas, I think, was the apostle I identified with most. And so when I wrote my first apologetics book, it was based on Thomas's words. You know, the title of my book is Unless I See. And those are the words of Thomas, because I think a lot of us who came very skeptical to Christianity, you know, I thought it was a very powerful story. But yeah, I had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions here. And so the title of my first book was based on Thomas's words. So great insights there. And for many of us who are in Asia... It is believed that Thomas made it all the way to India and may have even spent maybe four or five years in China planting a couple of churches there before he came back to India and was martyred there. So tremendous character there that often is overlooked many times in our study of the Easter account. I'm so glad you said that. And as an apologist, you probably really appreciate Thomas. And I did not know that about China, but that would make sense. And what a great... What a great testimony legacy. Thomas asked the questions that gave us the answers that we now have to give us assurance of our faith. He asked the questions that resulted on the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who tells us how to worship my Lord and my God. So he should be admired as, a, an, as an apostle of courage. Yes, you know, and now in the news, we're hearing a lot about women and women's rights and all these things. And one of the things that you point out that was so revolutionary in the ministry of Jesus is that he involved women in his ministry and that they were some of the first to announce the resurrection of Christ. Tell us why is this significant, especially in the cultural and historical context we find ourselves in in the New Testament? I think it's significant for two reasons. I think, number one, when you read most historians and scholars, they will tell you that in that first century in the Greco-Roman culture, that the testimony of women was not admissible as evidence. It was not, women just weren't taken seriously. In fact, when Paul is talking about his apologetic for the resurrection, he doesn't mention their testimony because he knows that 
it's not going to be believed. So if you were to fabricate a resurrection narrative, <laughs> you would not put forward women as your witnesses because it would be immediately. It just tells us the authenticity of the story. But secondly, and more importantly, I think it tells us something about Christianity, about the kingdom of God, that Christianity, true, genuine Christianity, always elevates the status of women. Now, today's a lot of debate, and Christianity is seen as kind of a backward, retrograde religion when it comes to women. But actually, if you look every place where Christianity has gone, and really historians have verified this, Christianity has elevated the status of women, and particularly true Christianity. And so I think it tells us something about the kingdom of God. The first evangelist and the first witness to the empty tomb and the first evangelist was not Pilate, the Roman governor. It was not the disciples. It was not the religious leaders. No, it was Mary Magdalene, a woman who had a, was afflicted with seven demons. I mean, this is the kind of people that Jesus is using to build his kingdom. And today we should take comfort that mostly God's kingdom, God's church is built through people whom nobody will ever know who are being faithful to his call. Yes. Yeah. You bring up a good point, you know, where a lot of countries in Asia where I'm in, you know, China is a good example where it's the gospel that really elevated the status of women in that society. And that's why in China, you know, women just embraced the gospel. And now the majority of missionaries coming out of China, you know, are indeed women because it's exactly what you're saying, how it really elevated the status of women wherever the gospel has gone. And it was modeled in the life of Jesus. It really was. And again, I think when we look at the characters of Easter, we don't just learn something new and fresh about the story that strengthens our faith, that this this is a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that we can trust and believe in him. But it also, the people he chose to be part of this narrative tells us something about who he is. Uh, nothing's accidental. Nothing is filler. Nothing is just thrown in there. Everything is intentional. Yes. Okay. Now, those are the good guys. And now, also in your book, though, which I appreciate, you go looking at some of the dark figures, the bad guys in the whole account here. And, of course, the one that leads the way, of course, is Judas. And a lot of us wonder, how is it that a man who saw the miracles of Christ, who sat down with Jesus day after day after day could turn on Christ. And so what do you think it was that caused Judas to turn on Jesus? And what does that teach us about the religious establishment that he felt had failed him? You know, it's it's shocking even 2,000 years later to see the story of Judas. You know, his name is synonymous with betrayal. Nobody's naming their kids. I don't think Judas Iscariot. <laughs> if you were to poll people in that first century and say, who is the most loyal, fervent Jesus follower, follower of this new movement? Everybody would have said Judas. Oh. Judas was the guy they trusted with the money. Yeah, that's right. And you don't give the money to someone you don't trust. So it's shocking that he's the one that turns on Jesus. So I think we get a few clues in there about why he turns. There's a lot of speculation over the years what caused Judas to turn Judas never calls Jesus Lord, interestingly, like the others do. Huh. Uh, so there's hmm. speculation that people think, well, maybe he just only saw him as a teacher. Again, though, it, it's really haunting to us that Judas was a gospel preacher. He was sent out by Jesus, I mean, to teach and heal. There are people, there are going to be people in heaven, likely, who are there because of the preaching of Judas. 
and yet he turned on Jesus. I think there's a couple things to think about. Judas came from probably an area near Hebron, an area that's probably a little bit more radical than some of the other places like the Galilee, more anti-Rome. It's likely Judas looked to Jesus as the Messiah who was going to finally overthrow Rome. He was looking for a political revolution. And slowly, Jesus is disabusing his disciples of that notion. When they want to make him king, for instance, he goes and hides instead of embracing it. If you're Judas, you're scratching your head saying, that's not how you build a movement. Other times, he's teaching, hard teachings, that people are leaving. Instead of adding people, he's subtracting people. He's talking increasingly, Jesus says, about death and a resurrection. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps even hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrad. Zucrad.